Welcome to Family History Mysteries, a podcast that tells the stories uncovered through family history research, the unexpected stories of everyday people. I am an avid family historian who has been compiling my family tree for over 15 years, with nearly 20,000 people collectively recorded in my trees. Welcome to Episode 8, Military Man. The subject of today's story is Philip James Bayliss, and he is my great-great-uncle. Philip James Bayliss was born on the 15th of March, 1883, in Wanganella in southern New South Wales. He was the fourth child of 12 to Philip James Bayliss and Matilda Mary Simons. I'll firstly give you a little bit of background with his parents to give you an understanding as to why Philip James was born in the small township of Wanganella. Philip James Bayliss Senior was born in Kempsey, Worcestershire, England, and was a sailor in the British Royal Navy. At age 16, he was a sailor on the, a British battleship and at 18 signed up for 10 years service on the ship The Black Prince. It seems Philip jumped ship in 1873 after plying the spice trade on the coast of China as there's no formal immigration records for Philip. He made his way up to Wanganella, New South Wales, quite likely to escape anyone following him due to him jumping ship. Wanganella is well known for the production of fine merino wool and by this stage there were vast tracts of land being bought up um, in order to produce sheep. It certainly was a long way from the sea and he worked at a property called Boabula as a sheep overseer. When serving in the Navy at Plymouth, he met a young Matilda Simons who lived across the bay at Corsand Cornwall. Matilda was a milliner, a hat maker, who travelled over to Plymouth daily on the ferry. Matilda also had several family members who were naval officers as well. Once Philip settled at Wanganella, around six years after arriving in Australia, he sent for Matilda. She took six months to arrive on the ship as it was becalmed in the Bay of Biscay. Within days of her arrival, they married at the manse in Williamstown, Victoria, and then made their way up to Wanganella, which is approximately four hours drive today, so a very long way in horse and cart. Now back to Philip James Jr., the subject of today's story. First time that Philip appears on records is on the 16th of October 1899 when he enlisted as a trooper in the second New South Wales Mounted Rifles contingent to fight in the Boer War. Three months later, his older brother George also signed up. On the 15th of March 1901, he departed Sydney on the SS Maplemore and arrived at Clerkstorp, South Africa on the 13th of June. He wrote to his father on August the 24th from Clerkstorp. This article was published in the Independent Newspaper, a Denelequin newspaper, on the 11th of October 1901. It's titled Trooper Phil Bayliss. Mr. Bayliss has kindly shown us a letter received from his son Phil, who is in South Africa. The letter is dated August the 24th and is from Clerkstorp, and is where young Phil is having a fair share of fighting. He speaks highly of Colonel Williams, who commands the brigade, and says he works just as hard as any of the other men. Phil is one of the party that captured Delaroy's convoy, which he states was the biggest capture for a long time. Although Delaroy and his wife managed to escape, 
in a cape car with three mule wagons. They all got his kit and also his mother and sister. Dear Father, I now take the pleasure of writing you in answer to your letter. Since leaving Young's, we captured two convoys and a lot of prisoners. We took 50 prisoners to Young's, besides 100,000 sheep and 300 cattle. We have had a terrible lot of night marching lately. We stayed in Young's two days. It is a very busy little place on the main line. We left there one afternoon at four o'clock and went about four miles, but there was no water there. Our kit wagon did not get in until 11 o'clock at night and it was cold without blankets. They came and randed us out of bed at 12 o'clock to go back to Young's to help the wagons on. There were about 50 wagons stuck between the camp and Young's in the sand. The bullocks and mules were knocked up before we left Young's, but we got them up to the camp all right. Colonel Williams helped me to load a wagon. He highly complimented us and gave us an extra ration of rum. We returned to the Transvaal three days later. The next day we went out with a flying column for three days. The first two days we got nothing, but on the third we got six wagons. We were the advance guard. Lieutenant Forster saw some cattle on our right, and it took nine of us to go and get them. We were passing a farmhouse when our guns fired two shells at us, thinking we were boars. One fell out about 150 yards off us and gave us a great fright. We got the cattle, a boar, 50 horses and a wagon. We got back to our convoy that night and left all of the weak horses with it. Next morning we took two days rations with us and we got close to the boars. The next day we had a few shots and one of our men was wounded, being shot through the hand. We camped at Wilmeranstad that night, which is around 245 kilometres southwest of Johannesburg. At one o'clock the next morning we started and at five came up with the boars and captured their convoy. We very nearly had Delaroy, but he escaped with his wife in a camp cart with three mule wagons, but we all got his clothes and kit his sister and mother. Next day we camped to give the horses a spell and the boars were all round up and at night we had to stand to arms. A lot of us with sick horses had to go with the convoy. We started out nine strong with the lieutenant in charge. I and three others were sent out on a Cossack post over on a copja. A Cossack post is consisting of four men that form one single line of posts and a copture is another way of saying that a group of people have been sorted into a group. When we got there, one of our men fired his rifle for sport and as soon as he did, two boars in another copture started with their mouses and we answered them but could not see anything to shoot at. About 10 minutes afterwards, we saw four riding along about 900 yards off and we fired upon them and killed one but the three others escaped. The bullets were coming very close. We put our hats on our rifles and put them over our necks. Two bullets hit just in front of me and recounted over my head. We retired from there and they followed us and wounded two MI and killed a horse. The following letter written by Colonel Williams speaks for itself. The officer commanding the column desires to thank all the ranks of the Australian Mounted Column on the successful termination of their hard work which commenced on the 14th of August and ended with the capture of a very large boar convoy yesterday on the 9th of August. The behaviour of the troops under most trying circumstances has been above all praise. The column marched over 50 miles, 
from 1am on the 19th till 3am on August the 20th, which in itself is a fine performance. But the return march of 21 miles on a dark night, bringing along upwards of 100 vehicles, mostly without drivers, besides many hundreds of cattle, could not have been successfully accomplished with any other troops. The convoy's capture consisted of 18 prisoners of war, 62 families, 17 rifles, 8,000 rounds of ammunition, 25 horses, 38 mules, 1,550 head of cattle, and 105 wagons and carts. An extract from regimental orders by Lieutenant Colonel Lassiter, command of the 2nd Regiment, New South Wales Mounted Rifles, the 20th of January 1901. The commanding officer is much gratified to note the praise in paragraph 2. He desires to further emphasise the remarks of the officer commanding and expresses his pride in commanding such a fine body of men in the 2nd New South Wales Mounted Rifles. During the swift advance of 15 miles, the extension was carried out with the steadiness and regularity that could be surpassed on inspection parade. The coolness of the men under fire of the enemy was up to the usual. Mr R. Standard Colonel Lassiter wishes to place on record the very high opinion he has of the soldier, like quality of the men of the regiment. All ranks are full of resource and ready to adapt themselves to any duties, no matter how arduous they may be. The regiment had the honour of capturing 83 out of 106 wagons and carts. This, the officer commanding the regiment, thinks is a fine performance. On the 24th of September 1901, Philip was slightly wounded at the Erlands River. And the following small articles were featured in the Deniliquin paper, The Independent, in October and November 1901. The first article is titled Wounded in Battle and they actually got Philip mixed up with another troop. So this is partly to inform the readers of Deniliquin, but also from the military acknowledging that they made a little boo-boo. During the week, Mr P. Barlis received the following communication from the military authorities in Sydney. Sydney, 5th of October, 1901, from Chief Staff Officer to P. Bailers Deniliquin. Sir, I regret to have to inform you that a cablegram has been received from the Chief Casualty Officer Cape Town, notifying that Troop Number 2695 BJ Bayless, New South Wales Mounted Infantry, was slightly wounded at Elance River on the 24th of September. As no such name appears on the nominal roll, it is supposed to be identified with your son, Troop Number 2795, Private PJ Bayless, East Squadron, 2nd Regimental New South Wales Mounted Rifles and I am desired by the Major General Command to convey to you his sympathy and to express the hope that he will make a rapid recovery. I have the honour to be your obedient servant, H.D. McKenzie, Colonel Chief Staff Officer. And then a month later, Private Phil Bayless, Mr. P. Bayless, father of Private Bayless, who was recently wounded in the Transvaal, has received the following letter from Colonel Lassiter. New South Wales Mounted Rifles, Field Force, South Africa, Costa Fontaine, October 7th, 1901. My dear Mr. Bayless, I am writing to tell you that your son, Private Phil Bayless, has almost recovered from his wound, which fortunately was very slight. He returns on duty on Wednesday. He was wounded at the top of a hill after charging across a plain with his troops and was under fire the whole time. The boars never hit anyone until they got to the top of the hill. He is a fine soldier and has given me great satisfaction. 
I have just seen him and he is very cheery and to be glad to be out of hospital. Yours sincerely, H.B. Lasseter. Just a little side note on H.B. Lasseter. Lasseter rose through the ranks after the Boer War service that he did. He rose to, to Colonel and he was also given the distinguishment of the Order of St. Michael and St. George, so known as a, a CMG, so a Companion of the Order. So it was an order that was awarded to him for performing distinguished service in the colonies or protectorates of the British Empire. On November the 2nd, 1901, Phil again sent his father a letter from Pretoria in South Africa. So it's titled, A Letter from the Front. Trooper Phil Bayliss. Mr P Bayliss handed us for publication the following letter which he received from his son Trooper Bayliss last week. You will be surprised to hear that we are at Pretoria. We got orders one night at Clerkstorp to be ready to start next morning by train. We were the last squadron to leave. We left about 8 o'clock at night, travelling all night, and arrived at daybreak the next morning and camped about 10 miles out of Pretoria at a place called Kerstfelbricken, which means first factory. At 5 o'clock the next morning, a start was made for Diamond Hills and we were then informed that the reason we came in such a hurry to go out and take a pom-pom that the Boers had captured from the Victorians. When William is referring to a pom-pom, he's referring to a machine gun. We joined the Thompson's column at about 11 o'clock that day. The Boers had driven him back the day before. Our Colonel Williams took over the command of his column and Colonel Thompson went on. The column was composed of 100 Canadian Scouts, 75 of Morley Scouts, 400 Gordon Highlanders and a couple of Imperial Yeomanry, two pom-poms, two 12-pounders of RHA and five machine guns. We had Reveille at 12 o'clock, marched at one in the morning and got onto the Boers at daybreak and the Canadians got their Colt gun onto them. Fourteen Boers were caught asleep in the house, including a captain and a sergeant major. We went into camp about 12 o'clock that day and all were very tired and sleepy, having been in the saddle since one o'clock in the morning. We had hardly got to bed when we were ordered to get up and move off. Starting at 10 o'clock we marched all night during the march, we surprised three Boer scouts on our post duty. They fired a few shots and then got away in the darkness. About daybreak, it was discovered we were on the tail of a Boer convoy and the shooting commenced and we succeeded in capturing a lot of prisoners and wagons. We camped at about 11 o'clock that morning and were told to get as much sleep as we could as another move would be made that night. However, we were only asleep about two hours when the Boer pom-pom started. I got a terrible fright, and I think every man did, and there were horses and men running everywhere. Gradually, all the horses were caught and saddled, and then our guns started, and you should have heard the row. Rifles, maxims, pom-poms, big guns going, and ball shells bursting everywhere. Our squad was camped right in front of the guns, and that was where the boars were firing. They killed one of our horses and wounded the rider in the arm and did great shooting. We did not think they had a gun, but we ne soon knew different. They would drop two shells for range and then drop 20 or 30 all round. However, our guns soon got the range and quickly silenced the enemy. A start was then made to try and get in their rear, but they had cleared with the gun and left about 300 men to block the pass. It was at a place called Whitcliffe, which means Whitecliffe, and was a very strong place. 
to pass we had to go right between two hills and then run along the side of the road for about five miles. The pom-poms, big guns and maxims all played on the left of the hill and we fired into it too. I nearly got shot through the chest but just got behind a tree in time and the bullet glanced along the side. We had been firing for about five minutes when our troops got the order to charge the kopje on the left. Away we went full gallop, 17 of us, and one of our men was wounded. We got there, but the enemy went further along the hill, and then three other troops, and the Canadians charged them and drove them off. Five boars were found dead, a Canadian sergeant was shot dead, and a couple wounded, so you can tell how hot it was. We were fighting all that afternoon, and 15 of our men got within 2,000 yards of their pom-pom when the boars were getting away, but there was nobody to back them up, or they would have got it. We camped at night at 8 o'clock and slept with no blankets or coats as they were all with the convoy. Starting at 3 o'clock the next morning, our convoy was reached at 12. The remainder of the mounted troops started at 10, that leaving our squad in charge of prisoners and supplies. We thought the Boers would attack the camp that night, so trenches were dug all round and patrols set out every hour. The prisoners were tied up with rope as they were giving trouble. There were 75 of them. A start was again made at four o'clock in the morning and we caught up to the flying column after five hours of riding. They had captured Major Wilmoran and he is now on his trial for murder. We then came on to Frelbricken and arrived at Pretoria. On the 1st of November, Lord Kitchener reviewed us and said we were the finest body of mounted troops he had seen and also gave us leave while we remained in Pretoria in recognition of past good services. Our leave extends from 8.30 in the morning until 8.30 at night to show the good work we had done in the last seven days, that is from the time we left Erstfelbricken and returned there, I might mention we captured 72 wagons, 75 prisoners, 378 cattle, 29 sheep or 1200 head of stock all told, including the trek oxen in the wagons, besides a number of rifles, etc. Philip arrived back in Australia on the 4th of June 1902 to Sydney and he returned to Deniloquim with his brother George on the 10th of June 1902. And an article in the independent newspaper in Deniloquim on the 13th of June outlines their return. The article is titled Return Soldiers. On Saturday last, Charlie Loy and William Halliday returned to Deniloquim after about 15 months fighting in South Africa. Owing to the absence of the mayor from town, they were not officially received, but the warm welcome extended to them by their many friends must have been particularly gratifying to them. On Tuesday afternoon, three more returned home, Walter Amor and George and Phil Bayless. They were met by the mayor and several citizens on the North Common. The mayor said he was pleased on behalf of the residents to extend the young soldiers a hearty welcome on their return to Dinaliquin. Three hearty cheers were called for and lustily given and the gathering adjourned to the Sandhurst Hotel where over a glass of wine with the Mayor, Alderman Sparrow and Jones spoke in enigmatic terms of the boys who had left Deniliquent to take part in the war that had now happily been brought to a close. A further invitation was extended to the Sportsman's Arms where the health of the Mayor and Mr Bayliss, father of George and Phil, was drunk. The returned soldiers look well after their sea trip home and all of them have gained weight. In fact, it has made men of them. 
it will seen, be seen by our advertising columns that the boys are to be welcomed by the members of the MUR00F, which is the local Deniliquin Masons, so Freemasons. Philip married Evelyn Harriet Llewellyn on the 12th of August 1908 in Deniliquin, New South Wales, when he was 25. Philip's sister Matilda also uh, married Evelyn's brother William five years later, so there's a, two lots of connections within the family. They had their first child, Philip Arthur Bayless, on the 11th of March 1909, followed by a stillborn child on the 6th of March 1911, and then their third child, Leighton William Llewellyn Bayless, on the 22nd of July 1913, all in Deniliquin. He was a drover at the time that his children were born, and then he became a stock dealer in 1914. He enlisted in World War I in February 1915, and there's a small excerpt in an article on the 26th of February 1915 in the Deniliquin paper, The Independent. Mr. J. A. Lorimer has received a commission in the Expeditionary Force and left for Broadmeadows on Monday. We understand that Mr. Phil Bayliss, who was engaged in the South African War, has also received a commission. So Philip trained at Broadmeadows Camp in Victoria until July 1915. He was given a second lieutenant position. He then moved to the Seymour Training Camp and was appointed corporal on the 21st of August 1915. He embarked on the ship, the Themistocles, from Sydney on the 29th of January 1916 with the 4th Light Horse Regiment. He would have been an adept horse rider with his droving background and would have been seen as a, a likely candidate to join the Light Horse. His older brother George and younger brother Thomas also enlisted in World War I. So again, George and Philip are enlisting around the same time to be part of the same war. Philip was transferred to the 1st Australian Division Cyclist Corps on the 20th of March 1916. Philip's brother Thomas Weaver Bayless also served in the Cycling Corps in World War I and I'll just give you a little bit of background to what the Cycling Corps was and what they did. The Australian Cycling Corps was formed in Egypt in 1916 as part of the Australian Imperial Force and fought on the Western Front in France and Belgium. When the Australian Imperial Force was reorganised and expanded in 1916, following the evacuation from Gallipoli, each of its five infantry divisions was allocated a company of cyclists in accordance with the British New Army establishment adopted at that time. At this time, each company had an establishment of headquarters and six cycle platoons with a total strength of 204 men. These companies were formed in March and April 1916 from volunteers from other AIF units in the Middle East. The cyclist battalions were organised like the infantry and were mainly used as dispatch riders. Later, during the periods of semi-open warfare in 1917 and 1918, they operated in a manner similar to the cavalry, conducting renaissance and patrolling. Other tasks performed including laying communication cabling, traffic control, unloading stores from railway wagons, harvesting crops and burial of the dead. The soldiers were issued with the standard rifle that was either attached to the bicycle's down tube or slung across their back. Although the battalions were not used as fighting units, their personnel were regularly exposed to the dangers of artillery fire and attacks by hostile aircraft. During the war, the 1st Cyclist Battalion lost 13 men, the 2nd Cyclist Battalion lost 59. The Australian Corps Cyclist Battalion was disbanded on the 30th of April 1919.
while all three brothers were away at war, their mother Matilda passed away at their family's property crookery on the outskirts of Deniloquin on the 4th of November 1918. Family members said that she died of stress and worry about her three boys being away at war. And this is certainly evident in letters that she sent to the AIF requesting information on the safety of her son, Thomas Weaver. And this was only three months before she died. The first letter is dated on the 5th of August, 1917, to the base record office. My son, Private T.W. Bayliss, enlisted at Brisbane, Queensland, in the 3rd Infantry Brigade, 17 Reinforcement, 12th Battalion, and then later at the 1st Anzac Cycling Corps. What I want to know is why I was not informed of him being ill with trench fever. I got a letter from him this mail. I have been looking for letters from him. I have my three boys and they are all over there. My two eldest boys fought in the South African War. I don't know whose fault it is, but I think I should have got word about him. It is a curious time for our mothers. And it's signed M. Bayless, care of Post Office Dinoloquin. And the other letter is a little over a week later, the 14th of August 1917, to the Office of Base Records. I am forwarding you my son, Private T.W. Bayless's last letter. I think when you read them, you will be satisfied that it was not without cause. I wrote to you, please be careful of his letters as I prize them all. Would you please inform me where I am to apply for a medal for mothers that have sons on active service? I see in Victoria that they have to apply at the post office and get them in the post. There are no forms at our local post office. Our sons enlisted in Victoria. On the 13th of December 1919, Philip returned to Australia. His brothers also returned safely from the war. He actually returned later than others. He resided in England for 12 months after armistice and was declared, and then he arrived back. Philip seemed to be a very effective military man, and as you would have heard from the articles written by his superiors, he seemed to excel in that type of environment. However, unfortunately, it looks like he didn't pass that same respect over to his wife and children upon his return, which you are just about to discover. He did return to his wife and children. Evelyn was now living in South Yarra, a suburb of Melbourne, and his boys were six and ten by this stage. But by January the 2nd, 1920, so within two weeks, two to three weeks, he left Evelyn and went to Sydney. He was discharged from the military on the 26th of February 1920 and within weeks he left Sydney for Papua New Guinea where he got a job with Burns, Philip and Co on a plantation in Rabaul. He used Inverell in New South Wales as his forwarding address in July 1920 not sure what he was doing in Inverell. I can't find him in any census records. He may have returned there for a few months because he was again listed as sailing from Sydney on the 6th of October 1920. He sailed on the Messina bound for Rabaul via the Solomon Islands to return to the plantation. You hear from him again two years later 
He arrived back in Sydney on the 18th of April 1922 from Faisy on the Solomon Islands and he listed his occupation as a planter on the shipping records. At this stage, he had been managing the Sorokian and the Choiseul rubber plantations at the Solomon Islands. In May 1923, he sailed to Papua New Guinea on the barrier to work at the Morobi Goldfields. He also joined the staff at Carpenter & Co. Carpenter & Co. was quite a large company and sold island produce from plantations, so no doubt he, he got this position through his work on the plantations. By the 16th of April 1924, he's listed as sailing from Sydney on the Messina back to Solomon Islands. And then on the 12th of June 1924, his wife Evelyn divorced Philip on the grounds of desertion. Philip had been gone for four and a half years at this point. The following is Evelyn's petition for divorce. Evelyn Harriet Bayliss, the petitioner, and Philip James Bayliss, the respondent. I, Evelyn Harriet Bayliss of 122 Pasco Vale Road, Mooney Ponds in the state of Victoria, married woman, make oath and say that I am the above named petitioner, that I was on the 12th day of August 1908 lawfully married to the above named respondent, Philip James Bayliss, at the Church of England in Illiquin in the state of New South Wales, according to the rights of the Church of England by the Reverend Reginald Smee. That the said respondent has, without just cause or excuse, willfully deserted me, and without any just cause or excuse, left me continuously so deserted during three years and upwards, as hereinafter appears. There are three children issue of the said marriage, two of them are now living. Philip Arthur Bayliss, born on the 11th of March 1909, and Lee William Bayliss, born on the 22nd day of July 1913. The other child of the said marriage was stillborn. That I am now of the age of 41 years, having been born at Moama in the state of New South Wales, and I was domiciled in the state of Victoria at the time of the desertion above referred to, I am unable to state whether I am now domiciled in the said state of Victoria, as I do not know where the respondent now resides, or what intention he may have formed to abandon Victoria as his place of domicile, or to acquire a new domicile. That the said respondent is, I verily believe, 40 years of age or thereabouts. He was born in Wanganella, New South Wales, and was domiciled in the state of Victoria at the time of the said desertion. That before my marriage to the said respondent, Philip James Bayliss, I was a spinster, and resided at Deniliquin in the state of New South Wales, and supported myself by sewing and as a pianist. Prior to the said marriage, the said respondent was a bachelor and followed the occupation of a drover and resided at Deniliquin in the state of New South Wales. Immediately after the said marriage, I lived and cohabited with the said respondent at Deniliquin until February 1915, when the said respondent enlisted in Victoria in the Commonwealth Military Forces and went into camp at Broadmeadows in the state of Victoria from February to July 1915 and later at Seymour in the state of Victoria in July 1915 to the 28th of January 1916. On the 29th day of January 1916, the said respondent left Australia for the war. The two children and myself stayed in Deniliquin until early in September 1915, when the said respondent came to Deniliquin and broke up our home, removing our furniture to Melbourne 
and we came at his request to permanently reside in Victoria. The said respondent took a two-year lease of a house in Pine Avenue, Elwood, near Melbourne, in the state of Victoria, and we thereafter lived together there, except as hereinafter appears the said respondent visited me in Elwood when he had to leave, and we then lived together as man and wife when the two years lease was up, and I moved to Mitford Street, St Kilda, in the state of Victoria, and from there to Park Street, South Yarra, where I was living when the said respondent returned from the war. The respondent was away from Australia until the 13th day of December, 1919, when he returned to Australia. He remained in England for a period of 12 months after the armistice. We corresponded with each other during the respondent's absence from Australia, but the respondent in one of his letters written to me shortly before he returned to Australia said he much regretted leaving his friends in England. Some months before his return, the respondent sent a tin trunk to me in care of an ex-sergeant in the military forces who was returning on the ceramic. On going through the said tin trunk, I found in it a letter to my husband from one of the ship's officers on the Themistocles, wishing him luck and hoping he was having a good time, and saying he was sure he would be having a good time if he was still as friendly with the same lady, and in brackets it says a nurse, as on the Themistocles. After reading the letter, I realised that my husband had been untrue to me almost from the time he left Australia. I also found in the same trunk a preventative of the kind commonly known as a French letter. Both my children and myself went to meet my husband on his return and I immediately noticed a change in him and his affection for me and spoke of it. He, the respondent, said that the years had taken such a slice out of his life that things could never be the same again. I asked him about the letter I foresaid and produced it. He simply took it away from me and tore it up. Upon the respondent's return, he left Melbourne to go and see his people and returned in about seven days. As Afos said, he acted like a stranger to me, went out in the morning and returned at all hours, practically held no conversation with me, nor did he take any notice of the two boys. He made arrangements to leave for Sydney without my knowledge. Finally, when I found out he was going, I told him that I was his wife and the two boys, his children, had begged him not to go away and said that if he went, that we would go too. He told me that I could not force him to live with me and he would give me ample grounds to divorce him. He gave me £100 and said he would send more. I walked to the door with him on the evening of January the 2nd, 1920, when he said he was about to depart for Sydney, and as he was going, I begged him to stay. He just shrugged his shoulders, and he said that he would only regret it the next day if he stayed. During his absence from Australia, as I foresaid, my military allotment, which was originally £9.02, shillings, was reduced in September 1916 to £7.14, as he had got behind in his pay book and remained at this till his return. I thereupon started to let rooms and do dressmaking to keep myself and the children and was doing so when he returned. I also, during the respondent's absence, paid off some old debts and finished paying off the furniture we had bought on time payment when we were first married. I have never seen my husband the respondent since January the 2nd, 1920, nor have I received any money from him. I have had to work hard to support my two sons and myself for the last three years. In July 1920, I received a letter, of which the following is a copy, 
I did not believe that such a letter was honestly written by the respondent or that his offer therein contained was in good faith and I did not answer the letter. P.O. Box Inverell, 14th of July 1920. Dear Mudge, I'm considering things. I think that for the sake of the children, things should not go on this way. So that if I make a home for you, will you consent to live with me again? I cannot promise a home in the city, but will do my best to make you comfortable. Will you let me know as soon as possible? Write to the above address as my mail will be forwarded on to me. I am leaving for Queensland tomorrow for cattle and will probably not come back here. Your husband, signed P.J. Bayless. So at this point, unbeknownst to Evelyn, Philip had already left Sydney. He'd gone to Papua New Guinea. He'd worked at a plantation in Rabaul in Papua New Guinea. Based on the shipping records, there's, there's really not a lot of time for Philip to be driving cattle up in Queensland. So what Evelyn, or Mudge as her family called her, suspected sounds quite right that it wasn't either him writing the, the letter at all or what he was saying wasn't exactly the truth. About one week after he left me, I received a lengthy cutting from a newspaper. And such cutting is headed, Marriage, the shortcut to divorce, and deals particularly with the question of desertion as a grounds for divorce. That about 1,920 I received a letter from the sister of the respondent, which the following is a copy. Now, this letter is from Philip's sister, Nancy. She was in fact Annie Elizabeth, but her family called her Nancy. And she was married to Neil Robertson and lived in Deniliquin at the time that this letter was written to Evelyn. Dear Mudge, you don't know how pleased I was to get your letter. Strange to say, you were very much in my mind that day. I was continually thinking about you and regretting that I had not been able to see you before you went away. And as for talk alone, I would have given much to have had the opportunity when you came up that night. I said to Neil, I wonder if Mudge will say anything to me about Phil. Mudge, I would have given the world to have had a talk over things with you, as my sympathy has always been with you right through. And I may tell you that both Daisy and Minnie are of the same as myself. They have been down on Phil from the start. The idea of any fellow daring to think he could just walk off and shift his responsibilities all on to the woman for nothing at all and to leave those dear little kiddies, I can tell you he got a pretty short shift from us girls home here. We have no time for him. We have no time for him whatever much. Why don't you make him maintain the kiddies? I would see him in jail first and just imagine him riding to the defence to try and get that money stopped like his cheek. Really, he would stop at nothing, I am certain of that, to gain his own ends. I can't help thinking how much wasted in not having a talk to you. I could have told you such a lot, as I hear from both quarters. What Katie tells me, what Phil tells father, as far as I know, he was to sail for New Guinea last weekend, and believe me, I don't think alone, is to work for Burns, Philip and Co. at £5 per week and quarters. But what occupation, I really have no idea but I can easily find out. I can't understand Maddie's attitude, but you know Phil is everything to her. And between her and father, he has become to feel some sort of a Christian martyr. I could jump on him. I feel that wild with him. 
to think that he could be so heartless as to walk off and leave a woman and two children to fend for themselves. No one but a mongrel of the worst breed would do such a thing, but it's just as well that you were the sort of woman to keep things together, or else the poor kids would have a poor lookout. But of course he is only trying to make things look black against you, so as to pave the way for himself. He has been borrowing money, or trying to, from several people here lately, to get a so-called pal out of trouble. By what I can hear, it is a pack of lies, and it was taking five pound a day for him to live, so you may as well guess that he's not very lonesome. Laurie was the one who could have given you all the facts of the case. Do you know he wired over here for money and said Laurie would verify it? Laurie didn't even know that he sent it. I think he got down on poor Laurie. Really, he would not scruple to ask anyone and has absolutely no idea of paying it back. And I cannot think where he gets such rotten ways from neither George or Tom are like that. They are real straight and have settled. He has done his dash with Tom. He won't even show his nose up at his place. Tom told him not to come up as he didn't want to see him. Aren't you going to do anything? I would certainly make him pay something as he left you, you not him. Although he told Edith, she is an old rotter, that you refused to go with him out of Melbourne. You are really well rid of him in one way as he would only be a drag on you. But I would certainly make him do something for the kiddies. Daisy told me she saw in a letter to father that he and dear old Matt were the only ones he cared about in the family, as all the others were a selfish lot, all they thought of were themselves. Now, did you ever hear fancy that coming from the likes of him, who never had a thought above himself as long as I can remember? Now, dear old girl, always remember you have a firm friend in your sister Anne. I always remember your goodness to me in my days of adversity, but apart from that, it is my affection to you personally. I was always sorry you didn't answer my letter that time. It always has stuck in my neck. I thought you no longer cared. Much love to your dear self. Signed, Nancy. And that I distinctly and inequivocally deny all collusion or convivience, past or present, direct or indirect, with the respondent. And it's signed E. H. Bayless. And I'm just going to read out the letter that Evelyn wrote to Nancy. So this is dated the 21st of August 1923. My dear Nancy, it is quite a long time now since hearing anything from you, so I am killing two birds with one stone. By writing to let you know that you are not forgotten entirely, and also to ask if you know your brother Philip James Bayless's address. If so, would you send it to me as I am taking divorce proceedings against him on the grounds of desertion and want the address to have the papers served on him. It is getting on four years now since he left the two lads and myself to battle along and I can assure you it has been one hard struggle for me and the older the boys get the harder the battle. Can you understand how a father could leave his two boys this length of time without one thought of their welfare? It is just beyond me. I have put in a dreadful winter down here. Both the boys were very ill and I had to close the shop to look after them, which meant a big loss to me and dressmaking at any time is hard, nerve-wracking work. Well, dear, I'm not going to worry you any further with my woes. I do hope you have quite recovered from your long illness and that your hubby and two boys are well. Hoping to hear from you at your earliest. With love, yours very sincerely, Mudge. And... This is the response from Nancy. 
Dear Mudge, suppose you are thinking all sorts of things about me for not answering your letter, asking me that question. I have been waiting to find out for you, but it seems no one, only Maddie, knows where he really is and how could one get it from her as you know what she is. Father does now know his address as when father got his money, Phil wrote to him and asked him for £200 as he wanted it to start with some fellow mining in Papua. I read the letter, but I could not remember what place it was. You know the awful names anyway. Father wrote and refused him, and Phil has not written to him since. He was only wondering where he was when he said he got a letter from Maddie, and she just said that Phil had left the Solomons and was in Papua, but did not say what part or anything. So that is really all any of us know barring her and if I were to ask her if she would she would not give it to me as she knows I have no love for him but father said he will try and get it he reckons Phil will be delighted as he has someone else but he says he thinks it would be hard to trace him as when he was in Sydney he was under another name hope you can get him as I think he should be made to suffer in some way he is a terrible rotter to leave a woman to face everything and two children in these times anyway I will do my best to help you, old thing, as you have always been one of the best to me. Now, dear Mudge, please give my love to your mother. I may see you all one day soon if I go away, but I will try to do this for you, and I will let you know. Now, good night, love to you all from your loving friend, A.E.R. And it's said that I am informed by my proctors and verily believe that on the 13th day of September 1923, they forwarded to Mrs. Maddie Llewellyn of Goulburn, sister of the respondent a letter of which the following is a copy but they received no reply to such a letter and just remember too that Maddie Matilda was married to Evelyn's brother William Llewellyn. Mrs W Llewellyn Goulburn New South Wales 13th of September 1923. Dear Madam Bayless versus Bayless we have been instructed for Mrs Philip James Bayless to commence proceedings for divorce against her husband on the grounds of desertion. We shall be pleased if you can inform us papers on him. My mother, Mrs Annie Llewellyn, with whom I reside now, has informed me and I verily believe that she received from Mrs Maddie Llewellyn, sister of the respondent, on the third day, November 1923, a letter of which the following material facts contain. A firm of solicitors in Melbourne have written to me two or three times for Phil's address. Tell them I don't know it. He went to Papua with a man and said not to worry if I didn't hear as he didn't quite know where he would be. And then I got a wireless message from a boat called the Birria to say he had left. That was in May. And I haven't heard since. I am that worried. I have written to anyone and everyone who might know. I am sure something is wrong with him or he wouldn't have left me like this without news. I don't know how to find out. If you hear anything, let me know. Does anyone know Mudge intends divorcing Phil? I don't think they know at home. I have not told anyone, not even Billy. Mind, I think it is the best thing to do. Pity she didn't do it before and might have found someone else. Don't say anything about Phil, will you, Nana? It hurts me because I love him. I feel sometimes in the night he might be dead and that is why he doesn't write to me. I know something is wrong. It is so wild where he is going. I will write again. Don't bother answering this till you feel like it. Love to you all, Maddie. And then it says that I know of no other relatives of the respondent other than his father and mother and his sister Nancy Robinson, aforesaid, and his sister Mrs Llewellyn, aforesaid, and I 
do not know and have no means of ascertaining the whereabouts of the said respondent. Evelyn added another note saying that when they went from Deniliquin to Melbourne, it says that Philip told her, I have decided that we will live permanently in Melbourne and never come back to Deniliquin again. After I come back from the war, I'll get a position in Melbourne and be able to remain there. I'll have the strings pulled for me and get a position there. I will. I'll be able to get a position in Melbourne with some firm of stock and station agents. I said to the respondent that I was very pleased to hear that, that it was his intentions, that he was tired of living in Deniliquin, that I had lived there all my life and never wanted to see the place again. The respondent said that he was quite of the same opinion and that he also didn't want to see the place again. The respondent prior to the enlistment in the Commonwealth Military Forces had been a drover. At the time of the conversation referred in the preceding paragraph, the respondent had obtained a commission as lieutenant in the Australian Imperial Forces. The solicitors tried to no avail. They advertised in several papers, including the Deniliquin paper, in order for Philip to be able to defend himself as part of the divorce case. And as a result, because there was no response, the decree Nisi was granted to Evelyn. Two years later, Philip pops up again. He was noted in a Queensland paper after visiting the Mulgrave Central Sugar Mill in Gordon Vale, Queensland with his brother Tom. Now his brother Thomas or Tom was now a successful gold miner at the Bululo Goldfields in Papua New Guinea and it says that they were visiting there together. Possibly they were on their way from Cairns to Sydney. By the end of this month he was boarding a boat back to the Solomon Islands. The shipping records state that he was from New Guinea, so Philip was from New Guinea. And then a Cairns newspaper stated, Mr and Mrs PJ Bayless were travelling with Mr and Mrs T.W. Bayless. Now I can't find any evidence that he married again. You would have noticed in the divorce papers though that his father was thinking that it was likely that he had met up with somebody else. Now whether he changed his name, took on a new identity, maybe didn't even let the lady know of his change in identity and married her under another name. That is quite a possibility based on what his father mentioned. By the 3rd of July 1926 he left Sydney again via Brisbane and Solomon Islands back to Rabaul on the Marcina. On the 10th of July 1933 Philip died of blackwater fever. Now, blackwater fever is a rare yet dangerous complication of malaria. It's a parasitic disease an awful disease because one of the symptoms is that you pass black or dark red urine because the parasites attack the red blood cells, hence the disease's name. It has a mortality rate as high as 30%. These days, due to the malaria drugs, it's not as high, but back then it was as high as 30%. At the time of his death, he was working at the Rinalio estate at Rabaul. He received a Masonic funeral. His father was a mason. You would have noticed when he returned from the war that they said that they were going to have a celebration for him. There is an article in the Riverine Grazier on the 18th of July 1933. It says, Mr. Phil Bayless of Deniliquin received a cable message from New Guinea on Tuesday announcing the death of his son, Mr. Philip James Bayless, from Blackwater Fever. The deceased lived with his parents in Deniliquin and was educated at the local school. At the outbreak of the Boer War, he enlisted and went to South Africa, where he was wounded in the fighting line. 
In the Great War, he joined the AIF and fought in France and attained the rank of lieutenant. On returning to Australia, Mr Barlas went to New Guinea about 14 years ago and for several years was manager of a plantation for Carpenter & Co at Rabaul. He was in the employment of that firm when he died. Deceased was 50 years old. The sympathy of many old friends is extended to the relatives of the deceased in their bereavement. So what became of Evelyn and the boys? Well, Evelyn did remarry. She married Hugh Doherty in 1932, eight years after her divorce. Hugh was a council employee and they lived at Erica and Hill End in Victoria. And she died in Victoria in 1943, age 61. Now, as you would recall, Philip and Evelyn had two children. I'm going to read uh, Leighton's information first, and then I will take you to their second son. So one of Philip and Evelyn's surviving sons was Leighton William Llewellyn Bayliss. He was born on the 22nd of July, 1913 in Daniloquin, New South Wales. He was known as Lee. He was a commercial artist living in Fairfield Park, Victoria, when he enlisted in World War II on 8th of November 1839 at South Melbourne when he was 26. In the same year, he married Joyce Purton. He rose to sergeant in the 2nd 7th Infantry Battalion. However, he was reported missing in action at Crete, Greece on the 20th of September 1941, presumed dead. He is listed at Falloran War Cemetery in Athens and Joyce never remarried. Their other son, Philip Arthur Bayliss. He was a lineman in 1931 in Westgarth, Victoria. He married Maxine Hopgood in Victoria in 1932. In 1936, he was a mechanic and they lived at Clifton Hill in Victoria. He enlisted in World War II as well on the 1st of December 1941 and then was discharged in 1945. In 1949, they lived in Faulkner. He was a jail warder and he was involved in a court case where he was given a suspended sentence and a good behaviour bond for two years for a charge of delivering letters and articles to prisoners. So I'm assuming he thought that it was best to have a career change as he was listed as a fireman in Noble Park, Victoria in 1967. Philip died on the 1st of April 1970 in Heidelberg, Victoria, aged 61. Maxine and Philip had three boys. Brian Philip Llewellyn Bayliss, Barrington Walter James Bayliss and Ronald Maxwell Bayliss. So there you have it, Philip James Bayliss. Sometimes the most ordinary people from ordinary backgrounds have the most interesting lives. If you have any mysteries you would like solved in your family tree, please go onto my Facebook page, Family History Mysteries, and message me. If you have a story that you would love to have shared on a podcast, I would love to feature your family member like I have with my stories. If you would like to see any photos or additional documentation based on Philip James Bayliss, I will add that to a Facebook post.